Hello, this is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education. I am super excited to be here with three great people, uh, and we are going to talk about a topic that we haven't touched upon yet in this podcast, uh, and that is social justice within physical education and physical activity. So what is the role of social justice within our field? Um, it's a topic I think talked about, but I don't know if we always go very in-depth in it, so I'm excited to have three people here who've done some, you know, a lot of different things in that area and to talk about it. So real quick though, before we get started on this topic, if you all can just quickly introduce yourself, tell me a little bit about, you know, your background, uh, where you're working at and your names and titles. I am Carrie Vanderbaum and I work for the National Center on Health, Physical Activity and Disability. Um, my background is in physical activity, adaptive physical activity, um, but my work largely is around health promotion in general and making um, programs within communities, schools, lots of different sectors, uh, inclusive of people with disabilities. Um, and then for the people who obviously can't see us, but they're listening to us, I am also a person with a disability. And my name is Josie Blagrave. I am faculty at California State University, Chico. Uh, I've been at Chico State for a long time as both a student. Autism has been sort of my background and my research path. And I am also the mom of twins on the spectrum. And I am Andrew Colombo Dugavito. I'm faculty at the University of North Texas in the Department of Kinesiology, Health Promotion and Rec. Uh, my research interests lie in the physical activity behaviors of autistic individuals, um, and through that work uh, across the lifespan, we started looking at the socio-environmental, socio-cultural factors of um, physical activity where barriers come up. And I also identify as somebody uh, with a disability. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for telling me a little bit about yourself. So let's start talking a little bit about social justice. Um, let's first define it because even myself, somebody that I think I listen to podcasts, I try to read articles on social justice. Sometimes I think the term itself is not uh, easily defined or understood. Can you, can, what is it? So, yeah, so I actually um, had to do my research and I wanted to look up a, a legitimate definition or, you know, something out there. And so the one I found that I really liked was just the way in which human rights are manifested in everyday lives of people at every level of society. Um, and when thinking about talking about this issue on the podcast, I was thinking about social justice and even the fact that we're framing adapted physical education or activity around social justice to me, maybe raise the, the issue that um, there's social injustice happening within our field. Yeah, absolutely. Following from that, I did the same, and I, I tried to look high and low for an actual definition, and it was hard. It, it became very evident we don't really have a clear, clear definition. I mean, the UN has one that goes back to 48 that's inextricably linked to human rights, but other than that, we don't really have anything. I found one by Dinesh Bruga that in 2010, he and some colleagues stated that it was to promote a society in which just and equitable 
valuing diversity, providing equal opportunity to all its members, irrespective of their disability, ethnicities, gender, age, sexual orientation, or religion, and ensuring fair allocation of resources and support for their human rights. And so when we frame that, I think in physical activity, it's, we have to, in physical education, we have to frame the idea that, just as Carrie was mentioning, there, there's injustice happening somewhere, right? We have a lot of evidence to say folks with disabilities don't participate in activity at similar rates as their non-disabled peers. But I think the rationale or the reason for that isn't just because of the disability. There's something deeper that's happening um, that we need to address and talk about. So I did the homework thing too, like you both did, mm -hmm. and you know definitions really similar. And then I started really pondering what that looked like for me when I think about it in adaptive physical education or activity. And I used to think like early on, a lot of the things I would read would be like, you know, giving a voice to those that we're working with or whatever. And I think the more that I sit with it and talk to individuals with disabilities across the kind of the whole spectrum. I really think it's more about for us as professionals and teachers like amplifying the voice. The other voices have always been there. We just haven't been listening. And so it's not my job to like speak for those we're serving. I really am just like, here, let's help get them out and start listening to what they're saying about stuff. I think that's important as scholars that we don't inadvertently say we're giving voice, right? Because people have voice. And so it really is using our positions of privilege and power to amplify and say hey these people have been saying things we just haven't been listening and so perhaps that perhaps that's a part of the social justice piece that that there are those of us out there who have that power and privilege and can speak not for but um you know in a way that makes others recognize hey there's this group of people that isn't getting access or, or isn't getting the services that they need do you think you said scholars, so you know us in academia? But do you think that's also like a something that the te that teachers have as well is a, a certain amount of power? Absolutely. I so one of the things that I like to talk to students about, whether they're students, um, college students, you know, training to become like an adapted physical education teacher, or whatever field they go in, or even some of the rec therapy students, um, nursing students. I always, I always say to them, like, don't get into this field, you know, thinking that it's all fun and games, but you need to be ready to be an advocate and an ally. And yeah, and use your position to, to, to advocate for these kids or these you know, adults that you're working with, um, because the, the reality is, is at some point you're going to be facing a situation where there is going to be discrimination and um, that child or that child's family or that adult with a disability is going to need help navigating um, through the situation. So let's talk a little bit then about um, some of those different groups of people that we might need to, to think about when we're talking about social justice. So is, is disability the, the group that we always need to think about or is it kind of a variety of different groups that we need to think about when we talk about social justice? I think all of the above, right? I mean, I think just we tend to ruminate on disability because that's sort of where a lot of our interests lie. Um, but, you know, there's the whole premise of intersectionality that people are just not one identity that we identify in different categories and 
So absolutely, of course, um, in instances of physical activity, it may be disability that comes up, but also sexual orientation or an individual's race or ethnicity may also play a role or even a greater role than disability. So absolutely, um, recognizing all of those pieces play a role too. I think it's really important, you know, yeah, of course we, we talk about disability because that's our background, but in the larger population, um, I think it's really important that we are very explicit about disability. Of course, you know, addressing these issues of intersectionality, um, but I think it's really important for us to really highlight and be explicit about disability because oftentimes when we do talk about social justice, you know, we will talk about all these other groups and disability will get left out. And so I, I really think it's important to be explicit about it. And that, I said that definition that I found by Bruegger and colleagues was the only one I could find that actually mentioned disability. Even the UN definition of human rights does not include disability. It's, it's under other status. Um, and so it's, it's often you know, secondary to some of these other categories that come up first. So with um, but it's, um, you know, as, as the CDC has reported that, you know, almost 20, 25% of individuals across the world have some type of disability and most of us are aging into disability so we're going to be impacted either personally or you know through a significant other family member likely in our lifetime so so within social justice realms even like disability sometimes discriminated against or forgotten i would say more forgotten even than well i guess being forgotten about is a form of discrimination but i think that yeah highly left out of the conversation for the most part. You know, people people say that, oh, we just need to help educate people and, you know, they're ignorant. But I remember listening to John Kemp, um, you know, talk about the issue. And I really liked it because he, he, I think the term he used was purposeful ignorance. So it doesn't matter if you're ignorant, it's, it's purposeful. And um, so, yeah, I think it's forgotten. It's, it is, it's, it's discrimination and, um, whether people realize it or not, you know, at this, at this time, and I think our, our, you know, human race, there is no reason for it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think if we're like, even within the social justice realm, like if they're talking about certain areas, why do you think disability is getting forgotten? I think that everybody is just trying to get their piece of the pie. So the more times you kind of cut it and share the different groups that need support, I think everybody's just jockeying, right? So there's a group of people who are underserved, under-recognized, and they're probably just gonna start fighting for what they can get. And so in my opinion, I think it's easy to just push out other groups and try to not lift everybody up and start to just like really get your group going would be how I would sort of interpret how it seems like things go. I think it's important too to recognize that there hasn't always been a platform for folks with disabilities to necessarily be out there uh, as much as say some other groups uh it, you know the internet has opened up the ability for many groups to provide a platform for them to say hey no listen I'm, i've been here and i'm not being served right I'm, I'm i'm not getting my daily needs met i don't have the support i need and i i think when you look at the disability history it's really important 
Well, it's really important to know the disability history, right? I mean, people with disabilities were, and in some places still are, you know, locked away in institutions. It was, it's, you know, it was a, there's so much stigma or fear around it. Um, and when you look at that timeline, really maybe we haven't come so far. Um, and then when you think about our education system, you know, maybe when kids are, you know, in preschool or kindergarten, there's a lot of inclusion happening, but then, you know, within our education system, that kind of goes away once kids are um, in elementary school. And so when you look at just like, and, it, and it's, it's okay, right? Because that's how we've always done it. And so we're just perpetuating um, these issues, I think within these different systems, like a school system or, um, you know, in certain communities. And so we're not really addressing the important, um, the, the important social justice issues of um, inclusion of people with disabilities and recognizing that people with disabilities are just people and it's not something to be fearful of. Absolutely. I think that brings up a great point, Carrie. There's a study out of the UK a couple of years ago that surveyed a bunch of adults without disabilities. And like, I think it was three and five, or maybe it was two and three adults without disabilities actively avoided someone with a disability because they maybe had a fear. They didn't want to even say something that was wrong. And so I think when you think back to childhood, kids are very um curious and maybe point somebody out who has even a physical disability and points it out but then parents say oh you know don't ask about that they, they kind of avoid the topic and so it's almost like a learned behavior that we go oh, disability is a bad thing that we shouldn't ask questions about we shouldn't acknowledge and we just try to ignore and even some most of the students that i work with one of their biggest fears is just doing something wrong and so therefore they actively avoid working with somebody um, because of that fear. I just read a, a blog, uh, Ted Kyle's blog, it's this consumer science health blog. It's actually really, it's a really great blog, but he was writing about, um, you know, like we have like the risk to benefit ratio, but he was writing about, and I can't remember who coined the term, but evidence to emotion ratio. And it's so applicable to so many different areas, especially in this current situation and lots of different things. But I, you know, thinking about it in terms of disability and social justice, I was like, oh, I think that's exactly what we see. You know, like in, in like say physical education, um, we know there's certain evidence that says like including kids with disabilities isn't harmful to anyone, and if anything, it's probably you know it's better for everyone. But um, I think that yeah, there's all these you know myths and those fears and you know it's going to slow down the class or affect other people's experience and so there's you can i think you could apply that evidence to emotion ratio to many of our situations in our field i love that that's a great all right so we, we're talking about these concepts and such so i kind of want to know what are the values that we expect like a, a, a ap teacher a p teacher or even just like a physical activity professional um, to have that would that would make them more you know to instill some of those social justice concepts within their professional setting like what is it that we would like to see um, actually occur I think it's hard to instill values in people <laughs> I think um, 
I, I feel that anyone who has chosen the field of adapted, whether that's education or just general activity, I think already has the innate value of recognizing that folks with disabilities deserve access to physical activity and they deserve um, to be treated just like everyone else. I'm going to, cha- can I challenge that real quick? Yeah. Because this is it. something that I sometimes feel in, even in our field, um, something that I'm not a big, it makes me uncomfortable is I think there's sometimes this uh, charity mindset when we talk to people uh, in our field and they're helping people out with disabilities and it's like this whole um, you poor thing um, concept. And I think that I don't know how many people are, you know, and I like to value everyone's perceptions and such because, but that's not really the way I look at people with disabilities. Um, So I don't know if everybody comes into our field with a thought that they're being discriminated against um, concept. Yeah, and maybe I have to restate what I, I absolutely believe that that savior complex exists. I think it exists across education and across philanthropy and all different sectors, regardless if it's disability or not. Um, But what I think I was trying to get to is that in our field, we, whether you're coming at it from a savior mindset, you're, you see the value that we need to provide access. So I don't know if we can teach or impose the social justice pieces of it. I think that's a little bit harder of a conversation. But, what- I think having these conversations, though, is going to help maybe people who might be seeing it from and maybe even unknowing that savior side of things. Just, I think having these conversations and keep pushing this idea that everybody is equal and, or not actually, which is probably why we have the social justice issue, but that we need to just keep having these conversations that are uncomfortable, that are hard so that we can disagree or agree or whatever we need to do. Just keep bolstering up the people who don't have a say in any of this. So, like, if you walked into a classroom, so, like, the actual, like, if you wanted to see something in practice, right? And so, like, maybe you can't see, and you can't see someone's values either. But, like, what what is a classroom or a physical activity setting where you would say that there's social justice kind of values or strategies occurring? Like, what what do those look like? How does a teacher implement social justice strategies within their classes? One thing that comes to mind for me is, right, I mean, say even without disability, you know, if you're teaching kids, you know, physical education and how to be physically active, you're going to have some kids who are obviously jocks and they do really well in sports. And then you have kids who, you know, we stereotypically are like, oh, they're the smart kids or the artsy kids, so they're not very good. And so I think if you're a good teacher, it doesn't matter, right? You're you're using techniques that can involve anyone. And so to me, um, you know, I, I think to, you know, Lauren Lieberman and her, you know, was it universal, she, you know, she really pushes the universal was it education. Design. Design. Design yeah. um, within education. And to me, I think if you're, if, you're, if you're a good teacher, you're going to be doing some of those more universal design type things within your class so that you're reaching everyone to just, you know, 
regardless of having a disability or being the artsy kid and not the jock, you know, and so everyone, and I think if we do that also, right, we're promoting more so that lifelong physical activity versus just teaching someone how to play soccer or whatever in their class. And I think for me seeing it, and it's something that I've started trying to even do it the college level with classes is having diverse examples of people. Mm-hmm. So when you're giving video examples or anything, like have kids in wheelchairs or have kids with downs or just whatever else is going on, like, or multicolor kids, you know, just everything, not just a bunch of white able-bodied kids up there as your examples of things. I think for me, that's one of the things I'm trying to push. And when I go into a classroom and see that there's all these examples, I'm like, yes, killing it, good job. I think it's also doing activities that aren't just the traditional sports, right? bringing in modified games or games that are designed for folks with disabilities. So bringing in something like goalball, where you may not even have a blind child in the school, but yet every single child in that school can play goalball. They can play modified versions of games. And then that opens up the opportunity for kids of every level, whether they are the jock in the class or they're the kid who just normally doesn't like doing activity, that they actually have an opportunity to do a novel game that they may actually be the one who's the best at, uh, instead of you know always being at the middle or the end of the group. One of the things, sorry, you go. Oh, you know, one of the other things too, I think, you know, if you go into a class and um, looking for this stuff too, is, you know, if you see kids on the sideline not doing anything, then I think that's a big problem. Again, you know, whether they have a disability or not, mm-hmm. um, I think that's a big indicator. Definitely. That's one of my biggest pet peeves. And even when I see, yeah, is like when we have a class and uh, because the teachers maybe see a kid as being too difficult to work with or something like that, they just let them sit on the sidelines uh, for difficult for behavior reasons or for because they, they don't see the adaptations. That's definitely something. Let's. I want to hit back to the point that we talked about then. And I think I see this as a strategy that someone could use is amplifying someone's voice. How do we do that? How, like, okay, let's also let's put it into like a general PE teacher's point of view. They have thirty-five kids. Maybe they have two kids on the spectrum. Um, how do they amplify their voice, and how do they get heard within their their class? I think it can go to you know like a strengths-based approach. So finding where that child may have their greatest strength. Maybe they are someone who can memorize all the rules of whatever activity you're going with. And you could let that child lead the rules for that game. You know, you could give them the autonomy and the power uh, to hold that for the class. And and that would show their peers, say, hey, that, that kid's, you know, they're really good at knowing the rules. We can, you know, we can use that in other games because they can remember when we don't. Um, and I think it's, It's also something we could give kids um, the opportunity to propose games, you know, giving them the opportunity to provide feedback as as the instructor. I knew a great physical educator um, who passed away well before his time, but one assignment he always did with his fifth grade class was he had them make up a game. And then he would go through and kind of pick, you know, He'd select the ones that had the best kind of rules and seemed, you know, quote unquote, most fun. 
And then he put it to a vote to the class. And then whoever got voted would get to be the teacher for the day. And so, you know, that may be the kid who's not always the best in PE. They could be the one that comes up with just the coolest game that everybody in the class loves. And he would do that year after year. And he would keep those games as a physical educator and then repeat them in subsequent years because they were just fantastic games. And that gave kids you know, the autonomy to choose what they did. It gave them sort of a buy-in to what physical education was, as opposed to many common narratives that came out in The Atlantic and The New York Times about how much people hate PE. And I think it's because we don't give that power and that autonomy to individuals, nor do we teach at everybody's level. I think an, another way also is, you know, just a little bit of pre-planning, right? So, you know, if you are in the thick of teaching a class and you've got your 35 kids and you, you know, you, you're struggling to, you know, maybe it's not realistic to reach out to that child with a disability or the student with a disability. Um, but it, so it, it takes, I think, a little bit of pre-planning, talking to that kid or the, the parents beforehand, um, you know, and, and making it known that you're as a teacher, um, you want to know how to best serve that kiddo. And, and a lot of these kids can tell you like what they need in order to participate. Like, I think to me, it's mind blowing when you talk to these kids and you, you know, say, Hey, you know, tell me about what you need. What, how can we best make this work for you? Um, and maybe you don't even have to do that for every lesson, but if you can get that information, then you can start thinking through what, what do those adaptations need to be? Um, but then going back to that kid or the, the parents, if, if maybe that kid can't um, tell you of what they need um, and, and getting that input that way, I think is really important. And emotionally checking in with the kids too, right? Like we're talking about, I think, oftentimes we're thinking about kids that are verbal, but we could also just do like thumbs up, thumbs down, like for the whole class and have that kid included in it. Or when I've seen a video where, you know, the kids are walking into the classroom and they're just touching on the chart, like where they're at for the day. So then the teacher is including that student in kind of the gauge of where everyone else is at, even if their verbal skills maybe aren't where everyone else is at. And it does require that planning piece. And I think it's hard and we're asking teachers to do more and more with less, but it's really, I think a lot of that planning and there's so many tricks just a couple of Google searches on the internet or reaching out to other people who maybe have more experience or collaborating with other people on your campus. I think it's doable. It just takes that little bit of extra. And I think it's just like a lot of things in life, right? Where it does take that pre-planning, but if you if you do take that little bit of time, it actually will save you time um, in, in the long run and make things better. So one of my experiences uh, is I worked with a lot of kids with, um, severe uh, physical disabilities and I had a, a few kids that had CP and they could communicate but it would take a really long time for them to get their what they wanted to say out and we were teachers and parents around or whatever and we were busy and so like and so one of the things that I always found to be a struggle was that people always try to speak for them they would finish their sentences they would rush them along what do we do how, how do we kind of combat that in a way? How do we, um, how do we hear that student's voice rather than an advocate, quote unquote, speaking for them? I think it goes back to some of that pre-planning again, where um, you know you work with the parents and that kid to to figure out what is that best communication method, um, and you know is there is there a paraprofessional or a volunteer? What resource can you 
provide so that um, you are making sure that 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 kid can communicate effectively um, without someone else speaking for them. So whether that's you know someone who who knows their facial expressions or knows when they're saying yes or no, or if it is a thumbs up or a down, um, or do they have a communication board that they can use, um, you know, and quickly point at things, you know, and, and working with the family and the kid to, to really devise that system. I mean, and some of this should be happening in other classrooms as well. And so it's not like the burden should just be on you as a physical education teacher, but um, hopefully, you know, the rest of the teachers or whomever else is involved is also using some of those systems. When I see that happen in person too, like the example of talking for someone and not letting them finish, I almost always will ignore whatever the person that's speaking for that individual said and go undivided attention back to whoever they were talking on behalf of and let them finish. Like as a teacher, that's probably not always with the classroom, something that you can do time-wise all the time, but showing that you value that student's voice and give an example to all the other students. So hopefully then everybody in your class starts doing that, I think is an important kind of way to go about it too. I think it's important too that we recognize that it's the student experience that is the most important in all of this. You know, lessons can be modified, content can be revised. So if it takes an extra 30 seconds, minute to listen to a student, that's going to go miles further than, you know, getting one or two extra repetitions, right? The fact that they feel heard and valued um, is going to, it's just going to make them feel that much more um, connected to the class. And I think it's important too in those situations, right? Even as a teacher, I think if you're around other students, the students that don't have disabilities and they are observing, you know, I think it's important for them to observe the correct behaviors from adults, like Josie was saying. But also if we don't, if, if we talk for the kids, um, I think the kids that don't have disabilities, like they can feel that weirdness and they, they can, you know, and so, um, it makes it weird, I think, for everyone, but if we can demonstrate the, the right behaviors, um, then yeah, I think it has an effect on, on the other kids too. Yeah, I mean, beliefs, beliefs are transferred, right? So, um, you know, if respect is shown, it's gonna be repeated. And the more we show an inclusive environment, um, the more it'll be repeated. At least that's the hope. I, you know, let's let's transfer this because I, I wanted to, to our audience to get a good concept of what is social justice, what it might look like. And I want to kind of one more thing about like, what does it look like? How do we make more socially conscious students, students with and without disabilities that are in our classes? Um, like, you know, I know you, Andy already said, it's really hard to instill values. So and I and I'm hearing this idea of showing that we respect multiple forms of communication. Um, but how do we, how do we try to give our students, all of our students, the chance to be more socially conscious? I think showing role model, like showing examples, the disability examples, the different examples when you're giving demonstrations and like giving, letting everybody see that there are all kinds of different role models in all kinds of different areas. Like one of the things Andy and I have heard from a lot of the autistic adults we've talked to is that they didn't have role models. They didn't see anybody that was like them growing up. And so when you're putting typical kids and those with disabilities in these spaces together and showing the whole human experience, I think that is one of 
just, I don't know if it's the easiest, but it's in my head, it seems like one of the easiest ways to just start having that accepting conscious atmosphere in your classroom and then hopefully start doing other practices that might support that even more. Word. (laughs) (laughs) That's the thing, letting kids be curious, right? So, you know, if we teach them that it's bad to be curious of what others' experiences are, you know, that, that oh, we don't talk about their disability because, you know, we, we don't want to talk about it, that that inherently puts a negativity on it. And so encouraging kids to be conscious of that difference isn't the same as, you know, highlighting it or making it a negative thing. If, if they're aware of it, they're going to be much more um, set up for the future. There was a, a school I worked at before I started my PhD that was housed in the school district's self-inclusive school. And so we had kids of all ages who shared spaces with some of the more um, severe behavioral issues that kids displayed. And there'd be a a kindergartner walking down the hall and a child with an intellectual disability who may be having um, a meltdown, just not a good time. And that kindergartner would say, oh, what's going on with them? And the teacher would take the time to explain what was going on. And therefore, the next time that child witnessed that thing happening, they went over and they consoled that kid because they said, you know, it's okay. You know, they weren't fearful of it. Um, They didn't try to actively avoid it. They tried to help. On that note, though, we have to caution against like the overly mothering atmospheres, though, right? Because then I think sometimes in this accepting and trying to make this culture that everything's fine, it's like, oh, let me over help individual in the class that has the disability and then that's not helpful to anybody either yeah yeah definitely there is that fine balance like so i just um with um the sports program i work with here in town we went and did a school day with um some junior high kids and you know we we showed them about adapted sports and you know at the end when we were wrapping up and talking to them you know it was like all right what what did you guys learn today and you know one girl raised her hand and was like, oh man, I learned how difficult it is to play these sports and, you know, and how it is, it's difficult to push in a wheelchair. And I was like, oh, you know, I appreciate, you know, your honesty. However, it's definitely not the point of this, right? Like, it, you know, it's difficult to learn how to play any sport, but, you know, if you got to play wheelchair basketball, you know, over time, it would get easier, just like any other sport. And actually, these sports wheelchairs allow us to play and they don't make it more difficult. And so, um, yeah, so really trying to make it clear um, when we're doing these things that, you know, yeah, you shouldn't be condescending. Being in a, you know, having a disability um, shouldn't mean that things are more difficult versus it's just a different way that we're doing things. You know, something that I found uh, really interesting, I read an article years ago, uh, but I also, I've seen them a thousand times, is like disability awareness days. Yeah. Um, and I heard, or I read an article that said that, um, especially boys, but it was like with middle schoolers, that boys especially, uh, girls seem to, um, there was no change, but boys actually had like lesser attitudes and such after disability awareness days um, because they were playing and they were like, because they were kind of like, emphasizing um you know you should kind of feel bad for them or something i think which i think is 
I, I you know, and I bring that up. Um, and actually, in a few episodes from now, we're going to have a Paralympic Day person come in, and they're going to talk about how you implement a Paralympian Day uh, into your schools, which I think is a sounds like a maybe a better concept than the traditional disability awareness. But I bring that up because I'm kind of like listening to you all, and I think even like the definition of social justice or some of these things, they, and you just mentioned, Carrie, like a balancing act that we need. I'm a teacher. I, I think I, li- I hear this stuff, and it sounds very gray. It sounds very difficult. Um, and like the disability awareness thing I just brought up is like, there's a lot of bad ways to do this that you can make it worse, um, potentially. Like, is it... Does does the, these concepts are they sometimes something that like I don't know like I'm I'm like kind of a barrier in themselves because they sound so difficult or so abstract. I don't know if that was really a question, but I mean I think right just like you know when we're doing research we shouldn't overstep our bounds into and pretend we know more than we do, and and I think that goes for anyone regardless of your field, and so. If you're a teacher and you're struggling with some of this, I think it's important to reach out and find your resources in your community or region or nationally that can help you um, maybe work through some of this. And, and then I also think it goes back to that universal design and education where, you know, you know, maybe we're making it too difficult in, in the fact that, you know, we you know, oh, we got to, I don't know, do all this special stuff for people with disabilities or whatever. But maybe if we took more of that universal design approach, then it's, um, you know, while I think it is very important to be explicit about disability and Mm -hmm. inclusion, um, but when you're actually implementing this stuff, maybe, you know, thinking through, all right, well, how do you get all kids involved? Um, And so, you know, I don't know if that's a very good answer, but... (laughs) Or ask people with disabilities, right? Like, I mean, we all, I feel like, have those resources. Or with a phone call, you could probably get those resources. Like, if I didn't know how to implement some wheelchair activity, I'd be like, hey, Carrie, I'm a dummy. I need help with this. You know, like, there's all kinds of ways you can go about getting that information that isn't that hard. I, I think it's important, too, to recognize that even though, you know, the three of us and, and Scott, you included, we talk a lot about this and... You know, we, we had to do our own research just to kind of come to a definition of what social justice would be defined as. And that, you know, we have some answers, but we don't have all the answers. And as a teacher, if you're struggling to try to figure something out, I think it's okay if you recognize, say, hey, I, I, I don't know what to do. That's okay, right? It's okay to not know the answer. It's okay to, to try something. And it's, a, it's okay to reach out to other people um, to try to make sure it's more inclusive uh, type of environment. And not necessarily just inclusive that people are in the same spaces, but in Justin's terms, you know, an integrated setting where people are, are actually engaging um, and are not just filling the same void. Definitely. I think those, for, for me sometimes when we talk about social justice, I think it's like um, there's a humbleness about it. Uh, it's like kind of you having to try to, you know, take in your own biases um, and reevaluate yourself on a regular basis. Um, I just think sometimes when I hear about it and I think about the practicality, because uh, I'm, I'm still like try to 
think that I'm somewhat related to like the, you know, people working and teaching. Um, you know, I just think from their perspective that these concepts may, might be difficult to, to, because it's not as like, it's not like behavior management where it's like do X, Y, Z. It's like kind of checking yourself on this regular basis and having those continual conversations. Um, you know, and the, and the results might be m- more abstract and difficult to kind of measure. But it's hard. It's hard to measure an inclusive space. Right? It's it's hard to know when everybody's person's needs are met. And I I think you know a lot of I was a physical educator for a number of years before doing my PhD. I was one of the kids who did well in physical education. I was the kid who was able to do sports and I. A lot of my colleagues uh, who I did my teacher training with were athletes, were people who found value in activity and wanted to go on and be educators. But we also were the people that most of these activities came pretty easily for. And so it's important to recognize that kids learn differently, whether they have a disability or not. And so we have to, I think, regardless of just social justice, but check ourselves as teachers and say, am I, am I providing instruction that is meeting the needs of all of my students? Am I providing this in a way that, you know, everyone can understand? And I think that the universal practices that, that Carrie's been mentioning a lot about are important. You know, if we're designing a lesson um, that is universally designed, that could be taught to anybody and with, you know, any type of background and they'll get it, you know, that's, you know, that's at least a start, right? And I mean, I think part of the problem too is just that, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of physical educators or other t- teachers out there that don't necessarily think about social justice, you know, in their teaching, right? And so, um, and they don't necessarily get the bigger picture of, you know, maybe when you're excluding kids or segregating them and not in, including them in your class, what are the, the you know long-term ramifications of that? Um, and and so I think we need to even, we definitely need to do better, I think, in our training programs of our future teachers, um, you know, in these college programs of making it, I guess, better known and giving that knowledge to these, you know, college students about the larger picture of and the effect that they could have on their students. Um, I know that when we were at NIFAPA a couple months ago at, at Oregon State, because um, I'm an alumni there, uh, that it was, I was so pleasantly surprised, um, not surprised, but it was, it was such a great thing to hear about how our APE or APA program at Oregon State was working um, and, and collaborating a lot more with Kathleen Bogart and her research on disability and ableism. And so bringing that piece actually into the APE, APA program, um, I was like, oh my God, that's awesome. And I wish, and maybe more programs are doing that. And I, and I just don't know, but um, if they aren't, I think they, they really need to. I, I think it's also important to recognize, you know, we, I, we do, as a field, segregate ourselves, right? As adapted people, we, we are a specialized group from general phys ed teachers. But, you know, what I forget what study it was, but they said about 80% of kids who are first mainstreamed are mainstreamed in physical education. 
So whether or not a physical educator is trained and adapted or adapted practices, they're going to be teaching students with disabilities. And so as people who train people to be teachers, it's important to make sure that that is emphasized and brought in um, and that we actually identify that problem. Because it's overwhelming, right? You have a, a group of 35 kids and maybe five to 10 of them, statistically speaking, would have a disability. Or, and then you add on top of that kids who come at different developmental levels and there's a lot to deal with. And that is one of maybe nine classes that somebody teaches during a day and maybe 35 of 700 kids they teach in a week. And so there's a lot of systemic problems and it can be very, as we know, it can be very overwhelming as a teacher to try to do these items. Um, but at least if you're aware of them, you know, that's the first step into getting to a space where we are now recognizing that this is this can be an issue and, and building in the practices of making it as inclusive as we can. Well said, well said. I wanna move on. I think we're, we're kind of hinting at some of this stuff and I wanna move on and briefly hit on, which is crazy to briefly hit on it, but I wanna move on to language use. Um, person first versus disability first language. I think that's a been a hot topic for, for a number of years now. So how should any of us or teachers or professors or fitness professionals, how do they refer to their students or people with disabilities? Um, and how do we know what the appropriate terms are for somebody with a disability when we talk to them or refer to them? So I started out by saying I worked with autistic individuals um, as an identity first preference. And that is due to working closely with autistic individuals, looking at research on preferences. But it's not a definitive answer. Right? There are certain groups who feel differently. You know, there are certain individuals who I would identify as uh, autistic, but don't want to be an autistic individual. Um, I think as teachers, it's important that we follow the lead of whoever we're working with and to not be corrective. And so if somebody uh, uses identity first language in, in their own, uh, you know, it's describing them themselves, then you follow that lead, you go with it, you don't correct their own language. I say, yeah, when you don't know, you, you can ask, um, yeah, what, what the person prefers. Just like with any other group, I think it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's always important to you don't know, just ask. Yeah, and knowing your audience, right? So I think a lot of times, at least my example would be talking about autism. And so if I'm talking to a bunch of parents at some symposium, I would probably say on the spectrum or individuals on the spectrum or whatever. And then if I'm talking to adults, I'd probably do person first, identity first, sorry, I do identity first. But then, yeah, not explaining yourself and thinking you know more than everybody else i think that's such an important thing like it's okay to be corrected we're all going to mess up stuff but then don't try to like explain yourself over the top of the person who has that identity and is trying to tell it to you i think that's one of the most important things something i kind of glossed over is i think a lot of people especially in college courses and if you look at their apa manual person first has been pushed for a really long time meaning that we say the person before they or the you know person with a disability why might somebody want disability first language? 
I think that's a, still a novel concept to, to many of us. Well, I think it's, it's linked to the disability advocacy movement and individuals who would identify as disabled taking back the term as being negative, right? And, and using it um, in a way that's, that wouldn't make them less than. And for a long time, you know, we use person first because we don't want, you know, whatever that label is to identify, quote unquote, identify that person. But in, in doing so, it subtly, innately makes whatever comes second negative, right? So we want to separate the person's autism from them, right? But when you talk, particularly in the autism community, and this is not um, by any means universal, but when you talk to individuals, you know, their disability, their, their autism can't be separated from their world experience. And so much like the deaf community who is taking it upon themselves to use identity first language, the autism community is doing the same thing because their world is, you know, seen through their autism. And by trying to remove that experience, you're innately saying that that's a negative aspect. Absolutely. I think trying to make sure that you're not using deficit language, however you go about it, right? So the idea of saying, you know, condition instead of disorder, there's a lot of things like that happening in the UK now and the US is sort of slow to pick up on that. But I think if you're going at it in the right space, you're open to listening, you're not trying to use deficit language. I think that's the best any of us who aren't sure can do and then well, I think I think deficit language has its place, and, and the reason I say that, I had a very unique experience where um, I had a right, so I was given, I, I worked with uh, high schoolers transitioning, and I was given forms um, that were going to be sent to Social Security, uh, right? So I was told pretty explicitly, don't sugarcoat this. <laughs> uh, we want deficit language, basically, because we that's what these... Uh, entities need to then, uh, you know, be recognized to get these different things. So I think that those are obviously contextual and obviously that's a specific situation, but that did kind of tell me, hey, sometimes we do have to know your audience once again, right? So who, who, what are we talking about and what is the purpose of this, right? So yeah, I, I think that's also because the folks who are in those positions to make those decisions, that's the, that's the language they recognize. Absolutely. Also, you know, in reading some older literature where identity first was the primary way people referred to folks with disabilities, it was almost like a pendulum, right? You started off in, you know, the seventies, eighties, even some of the nineties using this identity first language. And then we swung way over to the other side in order to kind of circumvent this, this, um, you know, deficit type of way of talking for, to folks with disabilities. You know, I think it's kind of coming back the other direction in which there are individuals who can advocate for themselves are saying, well, wait a second, you know, you're doing this and we, we recognize why it can be this way, but this is also how it makes it look in using this type of language. And so I think going back to some of the things we were already saying and following the person's lead or the, whoever you're talking with uh, is a great way to, to, you know, not accidentally step on somebody's toes with the language debate. Um, but even if you do recognize that it's, it's okay to make those mistakes, we're going to. I mean, in a shifting world where pronouns are shifting and 
identity is shifting. It's okay to make mistakes. You know, we're all still learning in this process. Um, but when you are corrected, you know, don't combat that person. Just accept you made a mistake and, and go with it. You know? Well, real quick, and I want to just gloss over this huge topic. But like, let's say that you have a colleague who uses, in your in your eyes, offensive language about a person with a disability. Uh, like the R word or, or something like that. How, how is, what is um, your response to that? What is an appropriate response? I mean, I think, you know, obviously calling them out on it um, and being clear about it. I don't think you have to be angry or upset, but um, yeah, I think it's really important at, you know, in that time and place to say, hey, by the way, <laughs> Using the R word is not appropriate, but here's some other words that you can use. Um, and, and I think it's, yeah, I think it's just really important to, to make that call right then and there. Um, even if you are around other people, because maybe you're helping to educate them too. Um, again, you know, I don't think it needs to be in any emotional way, but, or an embarrassing way for them, but it does need to happen. We're debunking any myths that were said too. Like, I'm, I like, like doing it, I hate it when it happens. But yeah, just hey, that's not cool, and here's the reasons why. Or you know, ideas that people with different disabilities also have intellectual disabilities. Like there's so many caveats, and I think people just often are ignorant and just don't know. Like I feel very rarely now that colleagues are trying to be jerks. <laughs> right. Yeah, and I think that goes back to where we sort of started with the idea of of being good advocates and using our positions of power and privilege to help you know, at least guide that towards a space that folks with disabilities would hope it would go to. And, you know, it's one thing when I first came to this university, the course I teach uh, was called Movement for Special Populations. And it, that was the term that had been used and for a long time. And so I had to come in and say, tell my faculty, hey, this, you know, it's, it's not the greatest term to call this population special, right? We can say it's for individuals with disabilities. And so it's just using those spaces to not educate or belittle, or well, I say not belittle, but you know, educate somebody to the, the shifting terminology. Right, because I mean, yeah, we all know, like you said, it, you know, we're talking about this in a very quick time period, but language is so powerful. And so when we continue to use terms like special needs, you know, we're just helping to perpetuate these social justice issues and these condescending, degrading, um, you know, experiences that people with disabilities um, have in daily lives and um, daily microaggressions. Something that I think a lot of times uh, from my experiences when people talk about language, it's not always like what I think a lot of people think about, well, if I use that term or this one, you know, I still feel the same way or something. But I think it's also the power that language has uh, in influencing other people's like point of views or how they feel or something, too. So it's more than just um, your own internal attitudes or something. So I think it's obviously really something that's really powerful and obviously something that we could have a two-hour discussion on. Okay, I want to finish up, wrap up. And the last question I want to have is just how do, we, how do you see our field, APA, APE, either or? How do you think we're going to evolve um, in, the, in terms of like being more socially conscious in social justice terms? Where are we going? I think we need to recognize that what we're doing 
for students, particularly when we look at activity in the, in the broadest sense, is that what we're trying to do overlaps with so many other disciplines that are dealing with very similar problems. And once we recognize that, sort of reach outside of our own individual silos, can we start to get to the complexities that exist in this space? And the same goes for when you're in the classroom. Uh, you know, the physical, physical educator, while they may be physically isolated in a gym by themselves, which could be on the opposite side of the building as any other colleague, what they're trying to do is not in isolation, right? They have the same issues likely uh, that classroom teachers are facing, or that the special educator is facing, or that the technology teacher, the music teacher, or the art teacher is facing. And so coming at it from more of a team-based approach can, can be beneficial. You can see things that other people are doing um, that maybe you're not, or vice versa. And I think to, to build off of that, I think our field is in this position to be a leader and an example um, to working with these other you know groups or teachers um, in order to show them like hey we know about adaptation or we know about inclusion let 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 me help you or let me show you or tell you or educate you or whatever so I, you know i think it's important again going back to that issue of um you know maybe you shouldn't get in this field if uh, you're not ready to be an advocate or, um, you know, but, but because I think that we are, you know, in this position to be a leader or an example and help other fields um, with inclusion of people with disabilities. I think, I think um, the idea too is our, and in our field is that we're unique in the way that we have something like the Paralympics. We have like a very, we have sports made for people with disabilities, you know, and we have exceptional athletes in some of those sports that we're able to highlight those things and kind of show them and you know on tv and such that really do a nice job of kind of highlighting uh extraordinary strengths and extraordinary you know um feats that can that makes us quite unique i think and i think it's important too though that we don't just consider sports right we mm -hmm. And, and just in the typical populations, you can only play organized sports competitively really for a short period of time. At some point, you know, you're gonna have to have the skills and ability just to lead a leisurely active lifestyle. And I don't think we necessarily do a great job of that in teaching people, okay, here's how to be a physically active adult without a pickup soccer game or. I think though that that could, argument could be made for able-bodied uh, people Absolutely. as well. Absolutely, we, we highlight sports and in the, in the um, whatever that that one percent of of our athletes. Everyone knows who LeBron James is, but you know, uh, there's a lot of ways to be physically active and healthy and such. No, absolutely, but yeah, good point. What do you think, Josie? Where's our field going? Social justice. I'm excited about our field. I think that there's so many people coming up that are passionate about their little areas and I think that we're all talking to each other and sharing each other's enthusiasm even if it isn't something that like we know a lot about and the fact that we're even having this conversation gives me hope and yeah I really think that adapted like you APA APE like you both said I think we're gonna make moves and help a lot of different people if we get out of our silo definitely well everyone I appreciate y'all coming on 
uh, talking about this uh, this topic that is something that I probably should have addressed uh, three years ago or something because I've been on for four years almost. So I appreciate everyone being on and coming on and talking. So thank you very much for, for coming. Thank you, Scott. My pleasure.